interesting one too. Oh, you mean I'm ready to go as soon as you? Oh. <clears throat> okay. Good morning, church. It's great to be with you all today. Um, I'd like to start out with a little joke. I heard about a guy that went up to heaven. He died, went to heaven. And uh, he met St. Peter there, and St. Peter's leading him down the hallways of heaven. And as they're walking down the hallways of heaven, this guy notices all these clocks hanging on the wall. And uh, all the uh, hands on the clocks are ticking at different speeds. And so the guy looks at Peter and says, Peter, what's the deal with the clocks? Peter said, well, every clock represents someone's life, and every time they sin, the uh, hands of that clock tick. And uh, the guy's looking around, and he looks at this one clock that's just barely moving at all. Peter sees where he's looking. He said, well, that's Billy Graham's clock. And then he looks across the hallway and sees another one that's barely creeping along. He said, that's Mother Teresa's clock. The guy kind of was thinking for a second. He says, Peter, do you think I could see my clock? Peter looked at him and says, well, sure. We keep it in the front office. We use it for a fan. Anyway, we're continuing on with our sermon series on 1 Peter this morning. And as I mentioned last week, this is a letter, a letter written by Peter to the scattered believers, to say, keep living for Christ in the middle of a hostile world, no matter how bad things get. What he's saying is to the people, it's a message of encouragement. Stand fast and firm in your faith, regardless of what you're facing. And it's also a warning that Peter brings, that hard times are still upon us, and more hard times are coming. And keep in mind that Peter's theme in this whole book of 1 Peter is hope is that Christ brings us hope in hurtful times. I said last week, I think all of us would agree that we're living in some pretty hurtful times. But today I want to pick the series up in verse 13 of chapter 1. And I want to look at the very first word of this verse. What's that first word? Look at it. Therefore. And if you're wondering what that therefore is all about, you actually have to go back to the previous verses and see what they're talking about. So in verses 1 through 12, uh, we talked about this last week. It's talking about how we have a living hope. Not just a hope, but we have a living hope through Christ. And we have a new birth through Christ. Giving us a future hope that's described in verse 4. Uh, take a look at verse 4. An inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, and is kept in heaven. Kept in heaven for you and me, those that keep trusting in Christ. And he talks about holding on to this promise through hard times through no matter what you're dealing with, maybe any storm you're facing, any trial, test, trouble, tribulation, that we can still have not just a hope, but we can have a supernatural hope. And this hope actually comes once we realize that Jesus Christ is the central piece of our puzzle to life. He's the centerpiece of that puzzle. I've seen it happen in hospital rooms when I've been there praying with people. I've seen it happen with people who have years of bitterness uh, built up in their heart um, because of maybe some abuse or rejection that they have faced in life, but where once they put their faith in Jesus and they put Him in the center piece and place of their life, 
all of a sudden, their life seems to make sense. When you put Jesus as the center puzzle piece of the puzzle of life, all of a sudden, he brings everything together. Then Peter goes on and he starts talking about salvation and what Jesus has done for us when it comes to salvation. And he goes back and he brings up the Old Testament prophets that realized they were teaching on something, a salvation that they would never see for themselves. They were teaching about a future Messiah Jesus and the salvation that he would bring. He hadn't brought it yet, but he was to bring it. And the Bible says they longed to see it, but didn't. I like verse 12. It says even angels longed to look into these things. This didn't mean that they wanted to, but couldn't. This actually meant that they wanted to, but in reality, they couldn't understand it. They couldn't comprehend the personal side of what was going on when it came to salvation, where somebody would be a sinner and be saved by the grace of Christ. They couldn't understand that because they're angels. They had never sinned. And it's saying they love to watch God's salvation unfold in the lives of people. It says they long to see these things happen. The Bible actually says that the angels in heaven rejoice when a soul is saved. I think Peter's main point is if the angels can get excited about salvation, shouldn't we? Shouldn't we think about that? If angels love to look at the work that God is doing in saving sinners, shouldn't we? Because when you think about it, we were once lost and then we were found. Then from verse 12, Peter kind of changes his tone from a tone of praise over to saying, hey, it's time to get serious. It's time to get serious about what I'm saying. He then starts out with a couple of things that we need to do. So if you're taking notes out there, the first thing Peter tells us is that we need to prepare our minds. You realize our minds are so important in everything that we do. In most anything we do, it takes some mental focus. I mean, right down to shooting a free throw in basketball. If you see somebody shooting a free throw in basketball, they take their time. They're uh, focusing on that rim. Uh, they're uh, uh, checking things out. They aim for the rim and they shoot the ball. If you watch a ball game in action, you'll see the players running up and down the court. You'll see them dribbling up and down the court. You'll see them passing the ball. And you'll see somebody pull up and take a quick sh jump shot. You know that same person that took that quick jump shot Whenever he gets to the free throw line, everything changes. When they get to a free throw line, all of a sudden everything slows down. They get mentally focused. They get mentally prepared. They, they uh, check out that rim. They check out the goal, and then they shoot the ball. I said all that to say, what's the difference between success and failure? It's actually being mentally prepared for whatever challenge we face in life. Being mentally prepared makes all the difference. And Peter is saying, get your minds ready. Because that's where the preparation has to start. And look what he says in the rest of verse 13. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. And being sober-minded, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. Let me go back to that first part. Prepare your minds for action. In my Bible commentary, it talks about how this text was originally written in the Greek. And I'm thinking, this is pretty powerful words that were written in the Greek. It means, gird up the loins of your mind for action. I would say most of us have never girded up our loins for anything that, at least that we know about, right? We think it sounds a little strange, a little weird, but back in that day, it wasn't weird to them at all. Because the men in that day wore robes. 
And when they went out to do some hard work, or when they went out to battle, they would pull up that robe and they would tuck it in their belt. So what Peter is saying is, gird up the loins of your mind. Peter is saying, hey guys, it's time to roll up your sleeves. It's time to get uh, a little bit dirty. It's time to go to battle. It's time to get mentally prepared. Being mentally prepared is where you have to start in your walk of faith. The next thing he says is be sober-minded. Being sober-minded. Well, this idea of being sober-minded, I think, has uh, a few meanings. I want to bring out a couple. The Greek uh, terminology in the New Testament literally means to be wineless. When it says to be sober-minded, it means to be wineless. We know that uh, alcohol and drugs can have a negative effect on our minds, and especially when we allow them to get control of our lives. We can weaken our judgment. They can lower our standards. But there's another definition of being sober-minded that I think pertains to most all of us today. It means to eliminate some things from our lives that are actually harming our lives. Eliminate some of those harmful things from our lives that could cloud our moral and spiritual judgment. And it could be a lot of things. It could be a toxic relationship that you're in, maybe even with the people that you're working around at work. Maybe it's being friends with someone on Facebook that you actually used to be in a romantic relationship with years ago, but now both of you have gotten married. But when you got together, get together on Facebook, you start flirting again. That could be dangerous. Maybe it's an anger issue, something that you've been holding on to for a long time. What I'm saying is sometimes we need to remove these kind of things in order to keep our thinking on what's best for our spiritual lives, to keep us on track. Over the years, I've heard it described a whole lot of different ways. Here's one. There are some people you ought not be friends with. Do you realize there are some people that aren't a good influence for your marriage, aren't a good influence for your family, they're not a good influence for you yourself? There are some books you ought not to read because maybe they cause you to compare your life with everyone else's or maybe they lead you into some kind of sin. There's some kind of uh, TV shows or movies you shouldn't watch. There are some places you shouldn't go. There are some internet sites you shouldn't visit. There are some people you shouldn't date. There are some people that if you get into a relationship with, it's just not good. There are some, some habits that you need to break. I said all these and there's a whole lot more. Peter is saying to be sober-minded. Absolutely sober-minded because these things can cloud our judgment. You break it down, Peter is saying, don't let your mind uh, drink in these things that try to numb your mind and your heart. Don't drink it in. Avoid it. That's what Peter's message, I believe, isn't just for the people back then, but it's for us today. I believe there are a lot of things out there in this world that are trying to numb our mind and heart toward the things of God. But look at the last part of this verse. Set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. I've always heard that a Christian's life isn't like a hundred yard dash. It's more like a marathon. So when I hear Peter saying this, I'm hearing him saying, keep on running and don't stop until you see Jesus standing at that finish line. He said, sure, the race is going to be hard sometimes. It's going to be long and it's going to be discouraging. But he says, keep your eyes on the goal. Keep your eyes on the goal, which is Jesus Christ. Because if we lose sight of the second coming of Christ and, and aren't looking forward to that, we're also losing the number one motivation for serving Him and living for Him in the first place. It's that important. Look at verse 14. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had 
when you lived in ignorance. Do you know what you were before you met Christ? You were ignorant. Look at the people around you uh, in the room there. Tell them, no, don't tell them that. I'm just kidding. Don't go there. The Bible says it. I didn't say it, but Peter said it. What it means is you did what you did because you really didn't know better. And think about this. Even if you had known better, you wouldn't have been able to have done better because you didn't have the power of God living on the inside of your life. Without a doubt, we were all born, every one of us with a bent toward sin. No one had to teach you to sin. Amen? No one had to teach us to sin. We just knew how. I know my son Austin, when he was just a little guy, when he was a toddler, um, his cousin Chad would come over to play at our house, and Austin knew one main word back then, mine. Mine, mine, mine was his word. Austin was so selfish. He didn't know how to share his toys. I didn't teach him that. Cheryl didn't teach him that. He just was selfish, and he didn't know any better. Well, as he grew, we taught him better. We taught him that's not the way to behave, that's not the way to act. Now the only thing uh, that he doesn't share, I would say, is the TV remote. And I'd say there's some scripture in the Bible somewhere that says I, as a leader of the household, ought to be in charge of that. Anyway, it's just like before you knew Christ. Before any of us knew Christ, we were living our life out by a different pattern that was different than God's pattern. Look at Romans 12, 2. It says, do not conform to the what? To the pattern of this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Right there it is again. It's about the mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. So think about it. The mind by nature, by human nature, is darkened because of sin. Our minds are darkened because of sin. I looked up some scriptures on, uh, that, were, that talk about our minds. There's a bunch of them in the Bible. I picked out a few. Uh, one scripture says our mind is depraved. Another scripture said our mind is filled with wicked thoughts. Another says it's an evil imagination. Another scripture said it's hostile to God. Another scripture said it's defiled. Another says its thoughts are empty and worthless. And it's easily filled with human pride. That's why every one of us, I don't care who you are, how close you are, or how far you are away from God, We've got a battle going on in here, right? We've got a battle going on in our minds. I think we need to make extra effort to make sure that we don't go back to living the life that we once lived before we met Christ. We have to stop behaving like the world, and we need to grow much spiritually more mature. Back then, we didn't know any better. Now we do. I think Peter is telling us it's time to break up with that old life. It's time to break up with that old life and that old way of living. The second thing Peter says we need to do is resemble God. Look at verse 15. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do, for it is written, be holy because I am holy. That's a pretty big command there, right? And what do you think of when you think of holy? What kind of uh, thoughts pop into your mind? Well, let me tell you what holy isn't. You know, holy is not a word that we use much anymore. And when we do think about being holy, it's kind of a negative thought. It's kind of like this really doesn't mean much for my life. You kind of think of someone that's somber, someone that's a little quiet, maybe drab, maybe a little bit boring, uh, not fun at all. 
I actually Googled the word holy, and a picture of a sad, somber woman popped up. But really, the term holy actually means to be set apart. It means to set apart, be set apart, separated for a special, specific, unique purpose. To be set apart from God, for God. This is why it's actually called holy matrimony when it comes to marriage. You know, when a couple comes to me and wants to get married, I do some counseling. I'll sit down with that couple and I make sure that they know, as husband and wife, they're going to have to leave the former commitments to their family behind and they're going to have to commit to each other in a brand new relationship. Their commitment isn't to everyone else anymore, it's to each other. Pastor and teacher Chuck Swindoll described it this way. Chuck talks about uh, his marriage as an illustration uh, of the exclusiveness of being set apart. Listen to what he says. He says, when I was a young man and a young husband serving in the Marines, I was 8,000 miles away from my wife. I knew Cynthia existed. I could read her letters and occasionally hear her voice on the telephone, but I couldn't see her nor touch her. I had only the memory of standing together three years earlier before God and a minister who had pronounced us man and wife, setting us apart exclusively to each other for the rest of our lives. We were wed back in 1955, but regardless of how long ago it was, we stood together and committed ourselves to a holy, I love this, intermingling of our lives. To be intimate with another woman would break that holy relationship, that exclusive oneness. Remembering that helped keep me faithful to my wife while we were apart those many, many months. You know, I believe this is the way God wants us to deal with the world. To get up each morning, to begin each morning by saying, Lord, I set apart my mind for you. I set apart my heart for you. I set apart my passions for you, God. I set apart my eyes. I set, about my, set apart my ears. I set apart my motives, God. I set apart my disciplines. Today, I set apart every part of my body, mind, and spirit for you and for your will. Can you imagine how our lives could be different if we prayed that prayer every day? Could you imagine how our lives could change? I guarantee they would change in dramatic ways. In my own life, I have definitely felt called to be separated unto God, and not just as a pastor, but as a Christian. My desire is to please God. I'm not saying I always succeed, but my heart is always toward God. And I'm just like everybody else. I get off track sometimes. And when I get off track and I start acting too much like the world with bitterness and hatred and anger and frustration and unforgiveness, God always, in His mercy and His grace, gently pulls me back to the plan and the path that He has for my life. That's the kind of God that we serve. So we are set apart as followers of Christ not to blend in with this world. Oh, the, way, the world is going to try to pull us every moment. But as followers of Christ, we are set apart not to blend in with this world. In Ephesians, Paul talks about how we can do that. Listen to what he says. Put off your old self. Let me stop there real quick. Put off your old self. That means we have to do something. Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. It's kind of like at home we have uh, 10 acres, and when it comes to mowing, sometimes it seems like I'm mowing all day long. 
I mean, I'll uh, mow the yard with the yard tractor, and then I'll hop on the uh, bigger tractor and mow the pasture, and then I'll do some weed eating, and then after that, I usually wrap things up with doing some barn chores, and at the end of the day, I'll, I'll say I'm just a little bit sweaty, dirty, and grimy. And if Cheryl and I have made plans to go out to dinner with another couple, what do I need to do? I need to go home. I need to jump, take off those dirty clothes, jump in the shower, and get cleaned up. When I step out of the shower, I'm ready to go, right? Well, not exactly. I need to put on some clothes. If I didn't, I might just get arrested out there. I'm just saying. It's not enough to take off our old clothes. Do you realize that? It's not enough to just jump in the shower and get cleaned up. We have to put on some clean clothes. That's what Peter's actually saying. In the same way, it's not enough for a Christian to just stop sinning. It's not enough. We need to start doing something else. He's saying we need to take off that old sin and put on holy living. Take off the old life and put on the new life. Look at Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. Paul says, be imitators of God. That means look like God. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children. Most of the time, children are a whole lot like their parents, right? I think that's why there's so many quotes about that. Like, he's just a chip off the old block. Or like, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Or like, father, like son. Well, if you're a Christian, you're a child of God, right? That makes him your heavenly father. And there ought to be some family resemblance there between you and your heavenly father. And if there isn't, you've got a problem. God's children ought to reflect and resemble the character of God to the world around them. And the people of this world ought to see that we are not molded and shaped by the character of this world. We, our lives are molded and shaped by the character of our Heavenly Father. And if, you don't, and if you want to know how to imitate or resemble God, just do what Jesus did. Get out the Word of God. Open it up. Read it. Get it in your heart. Jesus knew the Word of God. Jesus quoted the Word of God. Jesus prayed. Jesus fasted. Jesus served people. Jesus loved the unlovable. Jesus loved the outcast. And Peter is saying, hey, don't conform to this world. Don't be like this world. And in case you haven't noticed, this world is at great opposition to anything having to do with God. Anything. And when you've accepted Christ, you've set yourself apart. You'll be persecuted, without a doubt. Because this world has no affection, zero affection or love for Christ. And just as Jesus is and was hated... As a follower of Christ, you and I are going to be hated by this world. But I love what Jesus says. He says, in this world, you will have trouble. He didn't say you might have trouble. He says, you definitely will have trouble. But then he says this, take heart, for I have overcome the world. God is calling us to be holy. And if that seems like a hard standard to live up to, just remember that you've got the Holy Spirit living on the inside of you to give you the strength, the ability to make that happen. A man by the name of Leonard Ravenhill once said, the greatest miracle that God can do today is to take an unholy man out of an unholy world and make that man holy and put him back into that unholy world and keep him holy in it. Amen? We need to see Jesus Christ, I believe, as the way, the truth, and the life. Not as just a way, a truth, or a life. We need to do what God is calling us to do. Be holy as I am holy. Do you realize God is the standard of our holiness, for our holiness? Not this world, but it's God. And Jesus is the only one 
that was ever without sin, without any kind of moral failure. And do you realize that God never ever really argued with his people when it come to right or wrong? Oh, there were people out there that would argue with him, that would try to trick him, trap him. But God's true followers never argued with uh, God on what was right or wrong. Someone once said this, the Ten Commandments were written on stone, not in metal, not in clay or mud, which can be melted, shaped, or molded. None of the commandments, like the tablets on which they were originally carved, is pliable. Each can be broken, but not altered. That's so true. In other words, when God set up His holiness, it wasn't put out there for debate. It wasn't put out there for us to argue about. You know, when God brought the, uh, Moses brought those Ten Commandments down off, off of Mount Sinai, those tablets carved in stone, it says the sky was filled with thunder and lightning. There was a thick cloud on the mountain, and the sound of the trumpet was so loud that it made the people in the camp tremble. It terrified those people. Why would God put so much fear in their hearts? I think it's because God is trying to tell those people, these commandments aren't yours. They're mine. They're not put here for you to vote on. They're not here for you to haggle over which ones you like and which ones you don't like. God says, I'm a holy God, and I've called you to be a holy people. If you've made a decision to follow Christ, God is saying you are called to be a holy people. God says, I am a standard, the standard of what's holy and what's not. And then he tells us to be holy as he is holy. You might think, well, that's not possible. Well, he wouldn't have said it if it wasn't possible. And if we love him, we're going we, to want our life to be lived out like that. Amen? If you really too, truly love him, we'll want to grow up to be just like our heavenly father. But you can't do that until you first belong to him. You can't do that without him. Jesus Christ came to this earth to bring God to us and us to God. He's the very fullness of God in bodily form. He came to save us, right? He came to be our ever-present help. And if you want to be like God, you know, it can happen. And if you don't feel like you're like God today, it can start happening today. If you want to be uh, holy and have a holy joy in your life, you know, the first start step might be the hardest, but it's really the simplest. Just get honest before God and just God, ask God to help you. Just ask God. Tell Him what you need. Ask God to reveal Himself to you. Ask the Lord to fill you with the fullness of who He is. Ask the Lord to make you holy in every part of your life. You can't do it without Him. He didn't create us to do it without Him. But my big question to you to, as I close is, do you know Him today? Have you ever invited Him into your life to be the Lord and Savior of your life? If you haven't, right where you're at today, if you feel a pull on your heart and you want to accept Jesus Christ into your heart, I just want you to repeat this simple prayer after me. Could you pray with me? Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner and I need a Savior. I ask you to forgive my sin and come into my life to be the Lord and Savior of my life. I believe you died on a cross for me so that I could live for you. I surrender my heart and my life over to you today and forever. And Lord God, I thank you that you are the hope that we have in Christ. 
that no matter what troubles we have in this life, you're bigger than any of our troubles. Lord, we thank you that our trials serve a purpose for making us spiritually stronger. Lord, may your light of hope shine through our lives to the world around us today and forever for your glory in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. God bless you all. Have a wonderful week.